thinking about that because we're singing, I'll fly away. And when we get to fly away into heaven, it'll be because of God's grace. The gift of heaven awaits us. This morning we endeavor to talk a few minutes about grace. We notice that there are some descriptions of grace that that causes us to stand up and respect our God. We notice that there's a way of access into these blessings of grace. And then we notice that in the Bible there are several illustrations, demonstrations, of people who come to God and respond to His grace. So this evening, and on top of that, I'd like for us to discuss this. And that is, there are three ways that um, the grace of God can be perverted, distorted. It's not my words. Jude number four. But Jude in his little book, toward the end of the New Testament, Jude in his little book, verse four says there were some ungodly people that crept in unawares and um, they perverted the grace of God. And we want to notice three ways in which the grace of God can be distorted or perverted. Grace is just a beautiful word. Someone has called it the, the last best word. And I'll go along with that. There's so much to the grace of God. It is hard to, once you decide I'm going to study the grace of God, it's hard to pinpoint a certain place down because it's just everywhere. And your thoughts go here and there. But for our encouragement this evening, three ways that the grace of God can be uh, distorted. First, we can distort the grace of God is if we continue in sin. If we continue in sin, we can distort the grace of God. The grace of God is such a beautiful word, but it's been hijacked by people. It's almost become a code word for irresponsibility. People have the notion that because God's grace is so very good and so full of spiritual riches that, um, that it becomes like a blanket uh, over our sins. But that's the very opposite of the teaching uh, in the Bible. So let's read a, a couple places together. We'll read Romans uh, 6 together. And then we'll read uh, Jude 4 once again together, and then we'll come back to Titus 2, just to, um, just to emphasize the fact that we can distort the grace of God by continuing uh, in sin. There in Romans 5 and Romans 6, Paul spends quite a bit of time there at the end of Romans 5 talking about how that through Adam, sin came into the world and, and death through sin. So with Adam and sin came kind of a reign of death. But Paul contrasts that with the fact that through Jesus and through the grace of God, then there can be life, there can be spiritual life uh, once again. 
Where sin has abounded, Paul would say. Grace has much more abounded. Well, you come into Romans 6 and Paul poses this question. He says, well, then should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1 and 2. And then how does he answer that? Look in your Bible. How does he answer that? God forbid. Okay. In our words today, what, what would that sound like? Certainly not. Certainly not. In no way, shape, or form should you ever consider that. Okay. And he goes on to say, how shall we who have died to sin continue any longer therein? Okay. When did we die to sin? Well, whenever we were baptized into the death of Jesus, Romans 6, 3, and 4. When we come to that decision, when we come to the decision to respond to the grace of God by humbly submitting to Him, then we made the decision to die to sin. Okay. We are dead to sin. So it is, um, it is um, certainly not correct, to say the least. It's, in fact, it's foolish to think that um, in thinking of the grace of God that we, we would need to continue in sin. Stay right there in Romans 6. Look down to verse 15. Paul shares a similar thought in Romans 6 and verse 15. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we're under, we're not under law but under grace? And again he says, God forbid. In other words, certainly not by, by no means. Okay, where would they get that idea? Well, in the book of Romans, Paul is emphasizing that People are no longer under the law of Moses. Rather, they're under the law of the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, uh, 1 and 2. We're under the law of the Spirit. We're under the law of Christ that has set us free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, uh, 1 and 2. He's emphasizing that uh, in his book. So he says some people's going to get the idea that because now we're under grace and not under that law, then we should just continue in sin. He says, by no means, God forbid. Do you not know? You see that in verse 16? He said, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as servants to obey his servants, you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, but God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin. You see what coming to God is all about? We're no longer going to be servants of sin. But rather now we're going to obey from the heart that form of teaching that has been delivered to us and being then made free from sin, we become servants of righteousness. Okay. We leave one realm and go to another. We leave the realm of being servants of sin. Now we want to be servants of righteousness. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect people, sinless people. We've got another God and we're going to, we're going to reign over sin through Jesus Christ. We're not going to let sin dominate our lives. Now let's read from Jude 4 again. Notice specifically what Jude is talking about here. Starting in verse 3 of Jude. Beloved, I, I was very eager to write unto you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write, Jude verse 3, appealing you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to 
once for all delivered to the saints. For certain ones, verse 4, see that? Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for uh, this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into, this version says, sensuality. They pervert the grace of God for lustful goals, for lustful desires, and they end up denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. And so notice here that, that to continue in sin is to pervert uh, the grace of God. One other reference and we'll move on. But in Titus chapter 2, the, the chapter we were focusing on so much this morning, Titus 2, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Titus 2, verse 11. Teaching us, what? Teaching us, instructing us, training us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, this present world. Okay. Now, one of the most gracious things that God has done, in addition to sending His Son to die for our sins, but right next to that blessing is preserving for us this book. This book. See. This book is called, over in Acts 20 and verse 32, Paul calls this the word of His grace. This is the word of His grace. In other words, coming out of the grace of God. We, we, we made reference to that song this morning. God is the fount from, from whom 10,000 blessing, 10, blessings flow. A part of that flow of blessings from the throne of God is this book. And in Acts 20.32, Paul refers to it as the word of His grace. Okay. God has graciously given us this book so that we'll learn, we'll be trained, see, we will be taught, we'll be instructed on how to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly um, in this present age. And so, number one, if we continue in sin, we'll end up perverting the grace of God. While we're right there in Titus 2, let's notice just quickly, very quickly before we move on, Let's notice some thoughts that can help us to stay out of sin, stay away from sin, because we don't want to pervert the grace of God. Okay. I would say the first thing to do is to look up. Look up. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Keep looking up. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above. Look up. Remember that God would have every one of us to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. And to come into the knowledge of the truth. Keep looking up. He doesn't want anybody to perish. God is on our side. If God is for us, Romans 8 verse 31. If God is for us, well He is for us. Then who can be against us? God is for us. Okay. And so let us continue to look up. But then also if you look at Titus 2 and verse 12 we would need to look around because he says we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, this present world. Well, who's doing that? Who's doing that? Who is denying ungodliness and worldly lust? Who is living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world? Those who are following this book, they're the ones 
they're the ones who are living uh, in this godly fashion. Okay, so let's look around and let's make the contrast. You know, 1 Timothy 5, 21, 22 says to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. We've got the sense to do that. We can look around and see, well, what is it that I should be doing? Who should I be following? Who should I be listening to? Because uh, our, our very soul depends on it. So look up and then look around. But then verse 13 would tell us to look ahead because we are looking for, we're waiting for that day. You see that in verse 13? We're waiting for that day, that, that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to that day. So we can stay out of sin by looking up and looking around and, and looking forward uh, to that day. How often do you pray about that day? How often do you pray about that day? We've made reference to this, but when you look at the very end of the book of Revelation, almost the last statement in the book of Revelation is kind of a prayer, even so come Lord Jesus. But what's the next statement after that? It says, the grace of our Lord be with you. The grace of our Lord. One of the great gifts that will ever come our way will be that final day. Even so come, Lord Jesus. What are you waiting on, Lord? Do you pray to the Lord about it? In 2 Timothy 4 and, and verse 8, Paul said, Henceforth there is laid up for me that crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day, not to me only, but also to all those who love His appearing. We must love His appearing. We love the fact that He appeared the first time on the earth to die for our sins, to leave us the perfect example. But we also want to love this second appearing, wherein we will meet Him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We will fly away one day. So let's stay out of sin by looking up and looking around and looking ahead. Okay. But verse 14, Titus 2, would, would cause us to look back because it says, This Lord who is coming, He is the very one who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify to Himself a peculiar people for His own possession, zealous of good works. Let's look back. Let's never... Let's never detach ourselves from the cross. Don't you agree that if we look up, look around, look ahead and keep looking back at the cross that we will stay away from sin and we'll keep focused on our God? And then verse 14 would also tell us to look within and ask ourselves, am I part of God's people? Am I part of that peculiar people? Am I zealous of good works? So we pervert the grace of God by continuing in sin. A second way that we pervert the grace of God is by failing to be godly. By failing to have grace in our lives ourselves. We spent a little time this morning describing the grace of God and especially how beautiful it is. And, and we said that, that God's graces, the virtues surrounding His grace are, are such things as love and and kindness, and mercy, and patience, and goodness, and compassion. 
We mentioned Psalm 103, 13, as a father is compassionate toward his children. So God is anxious to be compassionate unto all those who fear him. We must have the same qualities in our lives. That's right. And you know this. You know this. I love the little word there in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Be ye tenderhearted. Tenderhearted. As your father, as, as God was to you in Christ, forgiving you, tenderhearted. Tenderhearted. So I read about a, a school class and one of the, it was a fifth grade class, and one of the uh, female students uh, was involved in a, in a very tragic uh, automobile accident. And uh, she was out of school for a while. When she came back, uh, well, it was known that in the accident she survived, but uh, in the accident she lost one of her hands. And as, um, as the teachers, uh, found out that she'd be back on a certain day and a certain month. Uh, they, they discussed it together. They discussed it with the students. They discussed it with, with the parents of the students, and they all agreed. And so when she came back, it was agreed that all the other students in, cl in the class and also the teachers and some even in the administration in the cafeteria, they were going to operate for at least a couple of weeks with one hand tied behind their back. So, first of all, they could understand what she is facing, and secondly, so that they could show her that they're seeking to understand, and they could truly be, be sympathetic toward her condition. In a way, isn't that what God did when he sent Jesus to this earth? Jesus came, he was full of grace and truth, John 1, 17, John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and as that Word dwelt among us, He was full of grace and truth. Jesus come so that we, we would know that God knows all about us. Jesus came so that we would understand just how compassionate God is. Jesus became likened to His brethren so that He could be a faithful and merciful high priest. Hebrews 2 and 17. So God came down and put on human flesh. And we ought also to try to get into another person's skin, as it were, to try to seek to understand. Seek to understand. Sometimes I lose that principle, but it's so powerful. When we first seek to understand another person, then it becomes so clear as to how to help them, help to serve in, in their behalf. Okay. That's what God did. And that's what we should do as well. And so we pervert the grace of God if we, if we fail to become more like a Christ, like God. And then number three, we pervert the grace of God if we fail to be humble. If we're not humble. And I mean humble. Because we're either humble or we're not. There are no degrees to, to humility. You know, so I know I'm a human being. You and I are together in this. And sometimes we feel like, well, we are, we are humble to a degree. Sometimes we're humble, sometimes we're not. 
or sometimes I'm just not going to be humble because I don't want, I don't want in that arena I don't want to be humble. I'm going to be a little. I'm going to keep my pride there. But really, before God, we just need, we must be humble. See? Ephesians two eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We must continue to remind ourselves that we are absolutely undeserving of salvation with God. We don't deserve it. Okay? What we deserve is found in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But then Romans 6.23 finishes up and says, well, but the, the free gift of, of, of eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what we deserve is in the first part of Romans 6.23. That's what we deserve. We must remind ourselves. That's where humility starts, is reminding ourselves. We are totally undeserving of, of this blessing. But how thankful we are. If we were even a, a little bit deserving, then we would have a little bit of room to boast. But notice what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, not of works lest any man should boast. It's impossible to boast about our salvation before God. It's impossible to boast before God. As Paul says in Galatians 6 and 14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world was crucified unto me and I unto the world. If we fail to be completely humble, then we're failing the grace of God. I'm reminded of some of the statements from Paul. Paul said in Ephesians 3, 7 and 8, he said, Unto me who, who am, it says that, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given that I might preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. But he refers to himself as less than the least of all the saints. It's just the way Paul felt about it. It's the way we must feel about it as well. In another place in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul goes through the fact that he had been so thankful to God, God had put him into the ministry even though he had been a persecutor and a very violent person and a blasphemer in time past. But, but he had obtained mercy. There it is. Mercy. And, and the grace of the Lord was, was uh, abundant to him with faith and love. That's how he felt about it. And then he gets down to verse 15 to 1 Timothy 1. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so a failure to be humble, totally humble. James 4, verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will, he will lift you up. That's the key to, that's the key to living there's an interesting statement made by Jesus and, and I'm, I don't know that I totally explain it well or totally understand all of it, but it's Luke 17, verse 10, where Jesus says, you know, even if a person does everything that the Lord would command him to do, he is still to regard himself as an unprofitable servant or an unworthy servant. Just imagine that. Just imagine you could, 
and it's impossible, by the way. It's impossible for everybody, for anybody to do everything the Lord has ever commanded him to do. We fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But he's just supposing with us. Suppose you could do everything there is, to, there is to do in the sight of God. You are still to regard yourself as an, as an unworthy servant. First, a servant will never be God. Will always be servant. He will always be the creator. Will always be the creation. Even when we get to heaven, it's going to be that way. We will be falling down before him in heaven. But then not just a servant, but an unworthy servant. Unworthy. You recall in Matthew 18, Jesus talking about uh, forgiveness. And I want to make sure I recall this properly here. But in, in Matthew 18, Peter had asked Jesus about forgiveness. And Jesus wanted to tell a story beginning in verse uh, 23, Matthew 18. And I'm just going to stop in the middle of the story. I'm going to stop at the beginning of the story. But he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought in to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now, in my margin down low, it says a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years of wages for a common laborer. 20 years. So let's see. A talent is worth 20 years of wages. And this man owed 10,000 talents. He was head over heels in debt. There was no way. He says to the king, have mercy on me, have pity on me, and I'm going to pay you back. There was no way in his lifetime he's going to pay the king back. And that is representative of our situation before God. Sin, even just one sin, puts us in total debt. And there's no human being, there's no one around who has the ability to cover that, that debt. No one has the, the ability to cover that obligation. And that's why Jesus died for our sins. And so the inability to be humble will pervert the grace of God. But once we grasp this, once a person gets a hold of humility, then there's a change that comes. It, it just brings a great deal of energy to the soul. It brings a, a, a zeal that has never been there before. If you, if you want to go back and read about the grace of God in Titus 2, 11 through 14, Look, it starts with the grace of God and it ends with zealous works. You see that? It begins, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And it says, if you stick with this, then you're going to be zealous of good works. It brings a zeal to our lives. Once the grace of God makes, makes us humble, we won't have any problem with zeal. But that's exactly the problem of the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3, 14 and 17. They had need of nothing. And that included God. And that's why they were lukewarm to where the Lord wanted to spit them out. You see, that was their exact problem. But if they could ever become a humble congregation, 
then you wouldn't be able to stop the good works uh, flowing from them. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul said, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not bestowed upon me in vain, but I labored more abundantly than anyone else. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And so I just wanted to mention three ways this evening. Just in a continuous study. See, we haven't even really, uh, we haven't really got into the depths of the grace of God. in just in the time we spent today. But how wonderful it is. The marvelous, wonderful grace of God. Going back to the, uh, the Apostle Paul, it, rem- it reminded me a few minutes ago of something I heard an older preacher say one time. He said, in every life, every faithful life, there's going to be a perversion and then a conversion and then finally an excursion. When I first heard that, I, I really didn't know what an excursion is. But then I started listening to some of you guys who go on these, these cruises and you, you get on these big ships and then you have an excursion. You leave the boats and you, you go out off onto land and, and, um, and you enjoy yourself. And then you get back in your tiny room in the boat. So who was describing to me the other day just how tiny those rooms are? I mean, but when they, was it you? I mean, I mean it, was, it was pretty narrow. It's like just reach out and touch the other, other side of the room. But it's a wonderful thought. Yes, we all start out perverted because we're sinners. We're either following the wrong doctrine or we're just in rebellion against God or our lust has overtaken us. Something has happened. But then we discover the grace of God and the gospel of grace. And then we follow His path and we can become converted. And then eventually, as we started out talking this, this evening, I'll fly away. There's 1 Peter 1.13. There's going to be this grace that is brought to us at the coming, the second coming of Jesus, that final day. So our excursion. One day, we'll be escorted out of here into that upper and better land. And we can't wait to get there. Thank you for looking at these verses uh, with me today on, on the grace of God. This is what should pull at our hearts. I may not have the personal power to dig into your heart, but God does. These are the very things that need to tug at our hearts. If, if, this, can't, if this can't get into our hearts, if we can't lay aside worldly matters, if we can't lay aside personality differences and let the grace of God really direct us, then then we're in rebellion, rebellion against God. Will you come this evening as we stand, as we sing, Brother James?